can we imagine that our evangelism is also about converting the people we love to love? Welcome to The Collective Table, the ultimate female perspective on Jesus, justice, and joy, with your hosts, Chelsea Simon, Dana Black, and Claire Watson. We're so glad that you're here for this seventh season called The Sermon Podcast Hour. During this season, Chelsea, Claire, and I are going to interview some of our favorite preachers about a sermon they've given. These sermons will be following the lectionary calendar from Epiphany all the way until Easter. In the various episodes, not only will you hear clips from the sermon, you will also get to hear the follow-up conversation with the preacher. Each preacher brings their own unique experiences, interpretations, and preaching styles. Our hope is to provide a well-rounded and expansive view of the scriptures, God, and ourselves. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Collective Table listeners, Chelsea here. Welcome to the very last episode of Season 7, The Sermon Podcast Hour. We wanted to close out this season with a bang, and so we offer to you a conversation with none other than the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. For those of you who do not know of Jackie Lewis, stop what you're doing and go and listen to her incredibly powerful and honest Easter sermon. Reverend Lewis uses her gifts as author, activist, preacher, and public theologian as she creates an anti-racist, just, gun-violence-free, fully-welcoming, gender-affirming society in which everyone has enough. Reverend Lewis is currently serving as a senior minister at Middle Church. She is the author of Fierce Love, a bold path to ferocious courage and rule-breaking kindness that can heal the world. This conversation is exactly what you'd expect. It is warm, justice-centered, prophetic, honest, and funny. After this episode, we are even bigger Jackie fans than before. We hope you enjoy it. Here we are, collective table, beloved individuals here. We're just, we are so happy and enthusiastic today to have the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis with us. We are excited to learn and grow and expand and just see where the Holy Spirit's going to move through this virtual conversation, this podcast episode. With that, I mean, I have to admit that this sermon, I've listened to it several times and we're we're trying to come up with questions, right? Chelsea and I are like, we got to come up with questions. And I'm like, uh, it was hard for me because I was like, yes, mm -hmm, yes, yes. Wait, I have no question. Just yes, yes, yes. (laughs) And every time I'd listen to it, something else would stick out for me. And I'm like, okay, I've got to write it down, put it on my wall. I got to let it sit there. I got to let it just be. And so we did come up with some questions. (laughs) But I'm going (laughs) to go with it and just let you know that we are just so honored and humbled and grateful that you're with us today. And thank you. Thank you so much. Let's start. The Middle Church is kind of a unique space. And so I'm wondering on your website, I love this so much. Our love creates a brave, safe space where we can become our fullest self. Middle Church is where Broadway meets spiritual revival meets therapy. We look like a makeup of New York City subway car and it feels like home. 
it's like a glimpse of heaven that I, I so desperately desire for the world. And so maybe just give us a little background on Middle Church and your time there and kind of what that community means for you. Yesterday, I'm having like the mildest case of COVID, but COVID nonetheless. So I stayed home from church yesterday, even though it was like our big Black History Month throwdown Sunday, where Titus Burgess of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and other movies in Under the Sea at uh, uh, Little Mermaid, just amazing star of screen and Broadway and film, is a member of our church who happens to have been the music director of his, you know, childhood church. So he and the choir just threw down yesterday. Then in the afternoon, we ordained one of my beloved mentees, Christina Fleming. I'm saying that to say, sitting in my office, looking at the screen, preaching from my chair, I felt enveloped by a wicked, beautiful, untamed love and spirit that I think is middle church. You know, we are multi all the things. We are as queer as we want to be and as straight as we want to be and black, white, Asian, Hispanic, indigenous, old, young, mostly Christian, but Christians of all stripes, also Jews and Muslims and Buddhists. And my favorite is atheists who come to church because they love the music and they love the justice. And it is a place that nurtures my soul. You know, you all are, are clergies. We, you know how it is like you sometimes think you can't worship at work. But I worship every Sunday with my people and can be fully myself in that context. And I think that we all work hard to make a home space for each other where we are giving and receiving, expanding and contracting, you know, sometimes afraid and sometimes very brave and bold, a little chaos in there for seasoning. That's Middle Church. (laughs) And in 2020, Middle Church had a fire that was pretty devastating. Can you tell us a little bit about that and where you kind of are now? Yeah, that that is that the fire keeps burning. I'll tell you what, the fire was uh, started in the building next door to ours that had had a fire a few months prior. So it was kind of a chimney, right? It was already empty and the fire moved fast. It was hot, six alarm fire that totally devastated our sanctuary. And the sprinkling water really devastated our program building, if you will, but it did not burn down. Thanks be to God. So these past two years have been a kind of sojourning, maybe I would say a walk in the wilderness. We worshiped at an Episcopal church for a little while, wasn't exactly right for us. We were in Zoom squares like you for a full year of COVID. We made a worship movie every Sunday and learned how to do that. And now we are in a synagogue called East End Temple, and they've made a mishkan, right, a a tabernacle for us. It's a little small for us. We sit on top of each other with our masks. But they are the kindest, most amazingly generous partners, and we're having a really beautiful experience together talking about Rabbi Jesus inside a synagogue, which we think is pretty cool. Very cool. And where is the process of the, I mean, this is a historic church building. From my understanding, what I was reading about it, where is the process of the renovation? Yeah, we, we worked hard to get permission to take down our facade so that we could rebuild on that site. It had been like a sign of hope, you know, the building burned down, but the facade is still here. Yay. But the facade actually has deteriorated in these two years of rain and snow and collapse and expand. And the fire really did burn it up, even though it didn't fall down. So we'll be taking that down this spring and saving what we can of it. I think we all feel both it taps into the original trauma 
of the fire to think about taking it down. So we'll be excited to see what we can save and excited to see what we can reuse, if anything, limestone, brick, anything like that. And then how do we rebuild? We're working on plans to start with the place that had the least trauma. So the program building, we're going to refurbish it. That'll be the place we start. And then we'll keep moving toward a new sanctuary. So we're excited to know that we have a map. It really does sound like a real live practical example of holding sorrow and newness, ending and beginning all together. And oh, it's, it's a heavy thing. Yeah. It is. It's hard, but it's our, it's our faith, right? And yeah. this faith is about death and resurrection. I remember Eric Law used to say over and over again, we're in a cycle of death and resurrection. And we are, we, our building died and we get to resurrect a new one and remind ourselves that God is the God of both endings and beginnings. Amen. Yeah. Goes right into this sermon. <laughs> <laughs> my Easter sermon and my crazy dress. <laughs> but so, we, so on the YouTube, we only get to hear the sermon, but was there was Christmas music? Is that kind of because you weren't yeah. able to? What had happened was we had planned to have this big Christmas program, you know, one year after the fire at our sister church, Marble Church. And literally about two weeks before COVID just spiked again in New York. And though the choir had prepped and though the songs were memorized, we could not in good conscience set up a super spreader event. So we had to cancel. And my wonderful musician, John Del Cueto, and I plotted like, how can we do an opera for Easter that is like the Christmas Easter opera. And so that's what we did. We had all kinds of Christmas music and all kinds of Easter music all smashed into one day. I love that. Very creative. You talk about how like these stories are connected and maybe you had to separate them and like understand them, but that the story starts with God incarnated in Jesus. And so we don't get to Easter if we don't have Christmas, right? So that's correct. That's right. And it is interesting, you know, the way the liturgical year is set up those stories stay pretty segregated. Like there's a couple things that might show up across both, like a Psalm 139 or something, Mm -hmm. but really it's this or this. And it was fascinating that day to kind of work with what it meant for God to come all the way Mm -hmm. down in the midst of us. In what you've heard me say, others say before, particular kind of flesh, right? Cain Hope Felder at Howard was the first person I remember thinking, Yeah, it was a particular kind of incarnation and that it says everything about who God is to come that way to those people. And then we had a chance to wrestle with atonement in a way that I thought was special because when you think about the baby being born and growing into a toddler and a boy and a teenager and, you know, right, getting bar mitzvahed and stuff, it kind of disrupts a simple sense that the purpose of the birth was the death. I'd like to think that the purpose of the birth was the life, right? Mm. That the life is the purpose of the birth, right? This is something that I have wrestled with. And then obviously raising, I I have three kids, two teenagers still in the house. One has kind of tossed Christianity out the window. But when we talk about these things, a lot of times like we don't understand why would God kill God's self? This makes zero sense to us. And I'm like, okay, right? Like they get it. It makes no sense. And it isn't, you know, I mean, you, we, all of us who go to seminary, any of us are lay leaders who train to teach. I think we have a kind of beautiful journey to exegetical tools, to historical criticism, right? To narrative, to context, to all of those things that God forbid we don't bring those with us to 
these conversations and into the writing we do. But I remember being a younger woman and thinking, do I have the right to ask a question about yeah. this atonement story? Do I have a right to say, what? And, you know, as my womanist colleagues, I was just at Proctor Institute with all kind of womanists wearing purple and all the things. But the womanist colleagues who, of course, are women who are feminists, women, Black women mostly, but wrestling with the nature of a God, the nature of God. And, you know, you are moms, I, I am my grandmother, to soften what God's intention was when you think about God as a holy parent loving all of us. Am I going to sacrifice my child to save my children? Maybe, but maybe not, you know? And I like the maybe not. I think a lot of our listeners are kind of in that same face. Who am I to question this thing that has been passed down and my church has taught me and ask the questions, like wrestle with the things that are hard. I wanted to take myself back to something today, which is to say back to the time before I didn't believe everything, but I could believe anything. Back to the time before seminary kind of like grew a hermeneutic of suspicion in me. And back to the time before I almost let it all go because I couldn't keep it. Like I couldn't keep it if I had to keep it all. And I wanted to go to the place where I found a way to have it. And one of the things you say at the very start of this sermon, you say, I couldn't keep it if I had to keep it all. And I love that because I yeah. think a lot of people are like, do I throw out the baby with the bathwater? How do I hold on to the things that are true for me? And so I'm just wondering, what was yeah. that process like for you? And as you were like shifting or working through some of that? You know, one of those things you say and you go like, I'm so glad I said that that way. And please don't forget to say that that way again. I couldn't keep it if I had to keep it all, right? Because my life and your life, all of our lives are also texts to interrogate. That so we have like the world we live in, we have our relationships, we have our stories of origin and becoming, and we have these biblical texts. And all of these texts are, I'm gonna say narrating our identity, right? I'm a psychologist. So these birth order, sexuality, religion, you know, social location, caste, sadly, profession, so many narratives come together to help us know who we are. And as a young woman, I had a terrible car accident right out of college. And I could have died. Like the car literally flipped over on the sunroof three times. Like tire, sunroof, tires, and spun around in the QEW. And magically, no traffic hits me. You know, magically, I walk away from this car accident. But because I was raised like I was raised, I didn't know friends that I was evangelical. But who, who knew? I didn't know what that meant. But my mom and dad believed in the literal word of God and the Bible. They didn't preach the whole Bible to us because, you know, they're black parents from Mississippi who taught the Ten Commandments and you know, the Beatitudes and whatever. But they meant it all. All I could think was, I had this car accident. What did I do to deserve this car accident? Can you imagine? What did I do? It makes me tears come to my eyes right now. Like, what could I possibly have sinned about that would make you kill me? That's where I was. And I was like, wow, I, wow, what did I do? And I don't want to offend your listeners when I tell this truth, 
But the only thing I could think of at that moment in time is that two weeks before my wedding, I actually had sex with my fiance. Two weeks before my wedding, I actually had the first sex of my life with my fiance. And I told myself, that must be it. That must be why God almost let me die to get my attention. Now that is some bad theology. Professor Kinney at uh, Virginia Union Theological Seminary would say that is some broken, fallen theology. To think God is going to teach me a lesson by giving my car a totaling, <laughs> right? What the violence in our culture over time has taught us, which is also why we can believe a God would say the only way to make a reparation for you sinful people is for me to let the world torture my child. I just had to let that go so I could keep my God, so I could love God. I had to know that God loved me and didn't need to spank me, whip me, torture me to teach me how to be a good girl. Yeah, I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I think I mean your story is is familiar to me. I think it's familiar to a lot of Christians. Charles and I have talked to so, especially to you know individuals in the queer community, purity culture, which has been just very damaging to sexuality, understanding your sexuality. How in that moment, because we've seen some people who double down in that versus recognizing, no, this is not freedom. If this is the God, if this is God, I I can't do this. Yeah, it was such a journey. You know, that was 22-ish, 23. And I went to seminary when I was 30. Mm -hmm. And in the years in between there, I was a girl, I was a woman living in California, working for East Makota Company, you know, looking for a church, you know, looking for a home, looking for a theology, looking for a God that could fit, that I could fit. I was on a journey to keep God with me and to not lose myself, right? And I went to go to churches all the time, be looking, sit in the back going, hmm, oh, this is kind of weird, right? Go shake the pastor's hand say, because in the meantime, I'm knowing I'm called to go to seminary and I just don't know how to do it. So there was a just a process, you know, thinking about process theology, my own shedding of things and trying on new things, a core sense of God is love that was in the center of the questioning and the answering. If God is love, since God is love, then what? It just, right? And I got to seminary. One of my mentors said, you were like, like Helen Keller. Let me find the water. Let me find the... You know, let me find the truth. And so blessed to be at Princeton Seminary when we were all in a time of foment and discovery. What is it? Can can people be gay and Christian? Can people be gay mm-hmm. and get married? Well, how do women lead? You know, well, how do we manage our resources? How do we deal with poverty? How do we make a just world? It was a really interesting time, 1990, 92, when I was there of pushing and shoving toward new identity. And as I graduated, having been in Trenton, working in urban ministry, having been mentored by beautiful people. I just kept walking. I just kept walking with God toward our relationship, which would be both about me and God, but also about me and the world and about the world and God. Does that make sense? Like I'm not by myself having a thing with God. I'm not on a date with God. God is not my boyfriend or my girlfriend. This is a relationship that happens in the context of a whole human container. And it has been so joyful to know that, that the God who loves me loves the world 
and I therefore am invited to love the world fiercely. And if it's not about love, I have to ask myself, what is it about and should I be doing it? God, you know, came all the way down in, and put on itty bitty baby flesh, black flesh, black Palestinian in Israel flesh, Jewish flesh, homeless flesh, right? Marginalized flesh, God put that kind of flesh on and came all the way down. I think we're kind of talking, you know, through your experience with the car accident and what you're talking about, our, our place in the world speaks to this theme in this sermon. I mean, the title of the sermon is This Here Flesh. And sometimes <laughs> yeah. I think Christians, which is which is the book whole Arthur Riley, who we love. But I think sometimes Christians kind of like discount the flesh. You know, my spirit is willing, but my body is weak. And there's like, we just don't want to talk about sex. We don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. But in your sermon, you talk about the Jesus came in a particular flesh at a particular right. time. And I'm wondering if you can just kind of break it through, like, why is that important? Why is flesh, why is experience, why is that so important, especially in when we're talking about the person of Jesus? Oh, I love that. Thank you. That's such a great question. Cole's book, beautiful book, um, after a season of Black liturgy, we're all looking for her, this here flesh is a beautiful phrase that comes out of baby Suggs holy, right? Baby Suggs holy in the clearing, you know, preaching in Beloved, right? And so this beautiful sermon being preached by an old black, recently emancipated slave woman, telling the men to come and dance and the women to come and sing and the children to come and cry and mixing it all up and just pulling these people, these black people into a clearing in the woods and saying, you know, out there, they don't love you. But this here flesh, like this here flesh is beautiful and strong. Love your neck, you know, love your, love your hands, love your heart. Love your beat, beat, beating heart, right? So lots of us who've read that literature have been extraordinarily inspired by that literature. And Cole does such a beautiful job of pointing her soul and her finger at the fleshiness of us. And what I would say is she's not making up stuff. The Bible points to the fleshiness of us all the way across the scripture, the fleshiness of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, the very humanness of them, the humanness, humanness, the fleshiness of Abraham and Sarah, when they're Abram and Sarai. And God's like, I got a promise. You're going to make some children. It's going to be great. And it was like, look, I don't know what God's trying to do, but I'm about to take this in my own hands up in here and get with Hagar, right? And like, sets a whole bunch of hotness in motion, right? That happens to also be a blessing. The very fleshiness of a God who will call the prophets in their imperfection, you know, and who will touch the house of a Miriam, in a girl child, basically, and invite her to be the mother of the savior of the world. Yeah. Right? That's going to require some menstruation and that's going to require some birth and some pains. And how were we trying to do? Act like that wasn't about that. Like, crazy Well, I don't think it was messy. What was that manger looking and feeling like? She's in there. Ah! Joseph's like, whatever. I mean, come on. So we've wrapped this whole story in some gauze and put some gasoline on the gauze and then look at it through a filter. The fleshiness of what it means to have a baby. And that baby is born to Mary. Yeah. And the genealogy stories to put her in the line of David fulfill scripture. 
that's nice. But Mary has the baby. Yep. And she has a baby who is Jewish mm-hmm. in the line of David, who was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth, which is ancient Palestine. Not Don't get Jewish in Palestine, all messy post-World War II. In those days, nothing good came out of Nazareth. So then like, get it together, y'all, and let's own that. Then it's like, oh, wow, look at God. Occupied territory is ancient Israel, like Judah, Israel, Palestine, Nazareth, occupied by Rome, soldiers running the world, aided by corrupt synagogue authorities. This is how Jesus comes to a handyman and his wife in a scandal. Baby, <laughs> I skipped my period. Right. Did you know? Wonder how. Hmm. I didn't do it. You know, this is a scandal. I like keeping it fleshy. Because then it's even more miraculous how much God loves us to have to come be with us in an ordinary way. I mean, you, just as you're describing it, right, you can you can touch it. You can feel it. You can. It's just so it's visceral. When you were talking about fleshiness, I'm thinking about Jesus. And you know what's coming to my mind is the hemorrhaging woman. Like, yeah. you know, the broken bodies that he's healing, that he's touching, the paralyzed. I mean, like just chills. I'm like, I don't think I ever thought about that before as it related to the body. But I always go back to that hemorrhaging woman and how we have tried to sugarcoat that or not talk about that or not deal with that story. But that is, you know. She touched the hem of his garment, you know. And, you know, and I'm not saying that's not how it went down because <laughs> she knew what time it was. But we can focus on the hem of his garment and her feeling the power come into her, or we can focus on how Jesus was willing to have an encounter with a woman who was bleeding with her unclean self. And all the women, all the people, all the folks that Jesus was willing to have an encounter with, including that Canaanite woman. I love that story. I could write a whole movie on that story. That's a whole thing, right? That's a good one to digest and pull apart. God's love is what the story is about. God's love is what came into the world as flesh, living amongst us to teach us all that we are divine and human and that love emanates from us and that we're called by God to do a bold new thing on the earth. And there's no God who grows a child up to kill the child. Now, the child got killed. That's historic. And why? Not because God needed to do it so we could be aight, but because we kill things we don't like. One of the most powerful parts of your sermon for me was when you're talking about how the story is a story about God's love, but hatred will kill to have its own way. We'd like to maybe put that in the past or like not recognize that that's happening right now. And you make it very present. I mean, this is our reality. Like we saw that then and we see this now. And I just think for Christian people who claim to be followers of this rabbi of peace and love that we have taken up our sword. And I just wonder if you maybe speak to that, how we see that played out today. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, it is a very sad truth that then and now in the name of the peace baby, the Prince of Peace, how many different ways the church has picked up arms. The way you say that is so plain and so true. You didn't become a Christian Jews. We're going to gas you. You did not convert. We're going to have the crusades. You are not white enough. We are going to have apartheid because it's God's will. 
for white people to manifest their destiny around the land. You are going to come to this Turtle Island, America, North American continent, and take the land from the indigenous and try to beat, rape, torture out the Indian of the children to make them Christians. Come on. And that feels like out of the box, outsized. We're never that way anymore, except that it was Christian flags flying over the January 6th insurrection. And there are Christian people walking around Charleston talking about the Jews can't take over. It was Christian people who went outside after church and watched black bodies lynched. We have to just own that inside the box of our faith has been a lot of violence and hatred. And our religion starts in a violent act, which is the crucifixion, execution at the hands of the state of Yeshua ben Joseph. So can we confess that? And if we look straight at it, can we think about how we repent from that and how we ask ourselves, what kind of people do we think we're supposed to be? And to care front the people that in our lives and our, around the dinner table at Christmas time, Easter time, when you get uh, well, Uncle Bob at Easter, <laughs> and Uncle Bob's going to be like, they are trying to take over. Why is everything about queer people? Why are the black people still complaining? What's wrong with them? <laughs> right? Can we imagine that our evangelism is also about converting the people we love to love? First, you mentioned the word evangelism, and I'm just like, ah, you know, scared, you know, but that's exactly the way to think about it. That's it. The good news, right? I, you all know we have to take those classes, right? I took, had to take a class on evangelism. Like, Bleh. don't make me take tracks around. But if the good news, Evangelion being sharing the good news, if the sharing of the good news means in all the relationships we have, we want to introduce people to God is love. Love, period. God is love. And those who live in love live in God and God lives in them. That's First John 4. That's Jesus's disciples beloved community trying to figure out what love looks like. If you take up a tabernacle in love, you're taking up a tabernacle in God. It's a fierce love. And with that, I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, the heaviness of the destruction, the murder, the genocide of Christianity. And you say in the sermon, I believe in the resurrection more today than I ever have. Yeah. Transition to the resurrection. Where does that come from for you? What does that look like for you today? Has that changed since last year? I believe in the resurrection more today than I ever have. Do you want me to tell you why? Because what was theological, what was theoretical, what was philosophical became real to me when my mother died five years ago. My mother, who was my first pastor, my first Sunday school teacher, my first trainer, my first teacher, my first advocate, my mother died. And when she died, that stuff didn't die with her. Like we all took what she had put in ourselves and in our souls into the world. My daddy is our mama, what? My sister takes a part of mommy. My brothers take a part of mommy. I take a part of mommy, my nephews, nieces, all of us have her cells and our souls in us and her love never dies, never dies, never dies. I believe in the resurrection more today than I did last year. Yeah. And I'm loath to think here is proof of it because there's a body that I can point to that stood up and walked around again after it was dead. And But I am clear 
that the bodies might die and the spirits do not, and that the embodied spirit, it doesn't need the old body to be a body, enfleshed enough, is, is what I'm saying. My auntie Achebe, Betty Pell, just passed away. Interesting that she's Achebe to me, member of my church, 82-year-old Black woman, started all these beautiful Black lesbian foundations and projects, was the first Black lesbian in the White House making justice, like just ferociously huge personality. She's just Auntie Achebe walking by after sermon saying, good job, you know, and she just passed away. And I was talking to her niece today, making plans for the memorial. I know that Lisa feels her auntie, like she's right there with her. Make no mistake about it. So I don't think we have to wait till heaven to experience the resurrection. Chebe is talking to Lisa, saying, girl, you can do this. Come on, let's take a breath. It's okay, right? And she's saying to me, Achebe's saying to me, Reverend, remember that week I told you, no matter what happens, end your sermon on that high note. All these last four sermons, I've heard you end right there. Girl, somebody's going to say to you, does she believe in the bodily resurrection in heaven? I don't know. But I believe in the resurrection without any difficulty because what our faith tells us about Jesus is we are the living body of Christ. Yep. We didn't all get to push our fingers in his wound and all that kind of jazz. We didn't all get to have fish with him and whatnot <laughs> on the beach. Right. But we are all of us the living body of Christ. And I am so clear that that's true. And one, I love that you name that because I, I think that's another area or topic, especially in our community where people, can they say that? Can they wrestle with that? Can they question that? And just appreciate you putting that out there and saying, yes, yes, you can. These are those spaces. It resonates with me. I lost my mom about seven months ago to cancer. My verse that always sticks with me is Revelation 21, 5. God is making new, not did make, not will make, is always making whatever form in that love form. I'm sorry about your mom. Thank you. I am sorry about yours as well. Yeah, it's a uh, thank you. What I hope I can say right now for, you know, anyone who ever hears this, our job on the planet as people of faith is to be in a conversation with God, not taking dictation. Do you know what I mean? Like not what, what, what was that? But in conversation with God, a rigorous, joyful, seeking, yearning, learning conversation with God. That's prayer has been called a conversation with God. There's a collection of old prayers by old black folks called conversations with God. You know, those of us who preach, we're in a conversation with God. If you teach, you're in a conversation with God. If you're raising children, wouldn't it be great if you're in a conversation with God? Wouldn't it be great if you're in a conversation with God on the way to work, in the car, on the subway, that all the time you are asking God in with you? What do you think about this? How do I mourn my mom? God, Betty is getting on my nerves. Please don't let me spank her in anger. You know, help me to think this through. Is it ethical for me to choose this moment? How do I have the Uncle Bob conversation? God, thank you for the breath in my body. All of those are conversations with God. And the texts that we inherit are from other people having a conversation with God. Are they different than us? The UCC says God is still speaking. Whatever. Talk to God and see what they are trying to say to you. That's how it's alive. Yeah, man. Mm -hmm. 
This conversation and your sermon, they name the hard truths. Like we live in times that are not God's kingdom fully realized on earth. We know we don't have to go very far to know that, but it's hopeful. And you end with baptizing a baby who is love made flesh, right? And so what is your hope for the future of the church? Octavius turned three, the little baby I baptized a few days ago. As we record this, he's newly three. He and his sister and their little friend Christian that was over there with them playing the other day. The children are the hope of the church, the Mm, future of the church. But that they want to come to church, the little ones want to come to church, that the children are making sandwiches for the people in the park, or that they are learning how to be kind to their classmates, or that the parents are teaching them that they are citizens of a globe where there are some children that are hungry and some that are not, they are our hope. Mm. And the way we have a church in the future isn't because we catechize our kids into rigid theologies that they have to unlearn in order to flourish. My colleague Shannon Daly Harris and I are writing a book, A Just Love Children's Bible. And we committed 52 stories. We're not trying to tell stories in ways that children have to be like, no, that was crap, right? How about if we instead catechize children into a living dynamic with God, that God will love them, not leave them, that God will not forsake them, that God wants to help them, support them. And I think that we will have a church in 50 years if we teach our children that God is love, period. When does this come out? (laughs) We need it. We need it. Not until 2025, but we've got stuff we're doing with women. That's good. Thank you, middlechurch.org, for some more love stuff for the kiddos. That's so important. Chelsea has said this so many times about what you're creating the the book for children because it's, I mean, Chelsea can speak to it more because I've already kind of raised, I mean, I've got teenagers now. She's got a two and a four-year-old. Oh, wow, Chelsea. You're busy. I try to think about what are they not going to have to unlearn? They might have to unlearn some things, but not, I don't want to hand them a toxic Christianity where they think, what did I do wrong to deserve that? Or like, I want them to know, like, God loves you. God will not forsake you. You are created in the image of God. Like, what are the core things? And then, yeah, the rest is commentary, right? And so. When my mom was giving me communion for the first time at church, daddy was serving it and I was sitting next to her on the pew. The bread comes by and she says, Jack. This bread means God will always love you, right? And then my memory of the bread is just so sweet. It's like that honey bread that we now make dips in. And I'm like, wow, God loves me. Okay. And then this cup comes by, Welch's grape juice, which we all love as children. And she says, God will never leave you. Now, there's there's more things like be good to your neighbor as you are to yourself, right? Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Those fundamental tenets that are so important to raise children who are kind and good to the world, let's teach them those things. But if we turn our Christianity into a tool for their id, children have id. You're not not God's people, you're not my people. If we turn it into a tool for them to exclude or to justify their own personal privilege and power, we have failed them. We are human in a great cloud of witnesses called by God to live love every day, every day. Just out of, and this is more from a, as I learned to be a preacher and I'm in this journey, I came into ministry later in life. Who 
are the individuals that have influenced your work, your theology, your preaching? Who are people that we should be paying attention to, voices that we should be amplifying? I would say Katie Cannon as, as maybe the first womanist whose seminal book, Katie's Cannon, really helped me and so many people think about our stories as theological fodder. These stories are theoethical fodder. This is what happened. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, three of those people, not preachers, right? I think there's such a wonderful Ebony Marshall Thurman is a young Black theologian that I really appreciate. Iva Carruthers is an older Black theologian I appreciate. She's 78-ish or so. I would say Google womanist, uh, names like Emily Towns and Dolores Williams, just Black women who've charted theological pathways through the wilderness really inspired me. Dr. Lewis, we appreciate your work in the world, the way that you are uh, creating safe space for people to wrestle and doubt and push back on those questions, the way that you're offering and ushering people into love. And so for us, like personally, thank you. And thank you for this opportunity for us to share with our community, your wise and beautiful words. Thank you all for this opportunity. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so much for listening. Together, we are what God looks like. The Collective Table is supported by San Diego United Methodist Church in Encinitas, California, and the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. A big thank you to our producer and content editor, Claire Watson. If you'd like to financially support the work of The Collective Table, please visit us at thecollectivetable.org. There you can also find out more about who we are and view past episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channel, and newsletter. And keep up with us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Collective Table.